Hi, uh... <clears throat> you're right here at this online art live video. It's a free access live event. Um, I am the sincere spoken word uh, artist, writer, author, philosopher, thinker, director, person of significant control and chief of the sincere community organisation. Um, find me here at Facebook, find me at Twitter, find me at Instagram, and find me at sincerecommunity.org. Um, this event, uh, obviously by Sincere Poetics and Literary Phrases, um, it's also in association with other business pages that I have at Facebook, and it's being hosted here at Facebook. So my battery's running out, I just got to get the lead. If I don't keep the battery charged up, I'll have untold problems with the event. So I'm just gonna move the camera up to my iPhone. There. Hopefully that's charging. Yay! All right, so this event um it's also linked to one of my groups at my business page for my poetry and spoken word um the group itself is called bath city poetry hub i will be posting it or cross posting it to other groups that i have um and other business pro business pa business pages and my profile pardon me <clears throat> at facebook it's uh, public, it's for anyone on or off Facebook. Uh, and the theme of the event is the subject of Samuel, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Now, Coleridge created poetic ballads in the times of ushering what he titled as the willing suspension of disbelief for the moment which constitutes poetic faith. Quote, end quote. In the will of good faith is the worst reality, of the gross. We lessen, and we lessen that more and more. It's like a therapy, a therapeutic thing to do, uh, and we do that because of the magical realism of its horror. Unless, of course, you're the other way inclined and on the other side of it. Which has uh, got me thinking about what I've been doing with my detox recently uh, and events in terms of um, the unknowing doubtfulness of addiction and addicts and their arguments. So, <clears throat> with that, I'll be providing a free access live online media event, which is what I'm doing right here, right now. I'm reading the poetry of Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who coined the phrase, suspension of disbelief. Now what do we mean by suspension of disbelief? What does it mean? Suspension of disbelief 
sometimes called willing suspension of disbelief, is the intentional avoidance of critical thinking or the intentional avoidance of logic in examining something unreal or impossible in reality. So there, such as the were a speculative, speculative fiction in order to believe it for the sake of enjoyment. That's according to Wikipedia. That I just read from Wikipedia under the title of Suspension of Disbelief. So, with that, um, and the criticisms that arise from the likes of that um, in studies and addressing the context of its content. So the meaning that we are examining to access more of an interpretation um, <clears throat> on the argument, because at the end of the day, it's an argument. Um, <clears throat> that is the value of it. It makes me think of people like Mary Shelley. Um, so even Tolkien as well, of J.R.R. Tolkien, Mary Shelley, modern fantasies, um, an archive of Gothic uh, literary content, pardon me, uh, in terms of like archives and writings, um, even film genres as well that have addressed the point. So that's basically what it's getting at. Um, it, poetry is very aesthetic so and littered with philosophy. Um, Samuel Taylor Coleridge himself, um, he suggested that if a writer could infuse a human interest and a semblance of truth into like the fantastical, the fantastic, um, of, then the reader would be sus in a state of suspended judgment. So, which concerns the implausibility of the narrative. So what he's saying is, well, it, what he's, in terms of like his poetic, the poetic faith of his poetry's approach is a concept, so it's conceptual. And the concept of it is similar to like secularization um, and all the secular things that go on. That's outside of like religion, secular th things that go on outside of traditions, traditions and, and religion and stuff. So like the writer and reader can imagine not believing in the, the poem or the story even, um, a character and characters within that, the dimension of the concept. So like um, the supernatural and the romantic. For a start, 
the event itself is titled as such Romantic Age of Poetry in England so the Romantic Age of Poetry Romance well Romantic thinking during the Gothic period, during the 1800s, um, think of anthologies, anth- anthologies of literature, or at least English literature, um, and the nature of Romanticism. It, it's uh, distinctive um, in the first decades of the 19th century but is actually of the 18th century. Uh, Romantic is um, somewhat of a, it's like a really, it's an essential, pardon me, I didn't mean to knock that, it's an essential term, an essential definition uh, for something that's a little misleading, uh, really. Um, They would say that the the definitional term itself um, is indispensable in its meaning because it describes, it gives description and definition, whatever, to the style. Because this is what it was, it was a style, it's of a style. So, um, in that, no self-styled movement within the culture of it, at the time, as the, those writers of that actual period didn't actually refer to themselves as romantics. They didn't actually refer to themselves as romantics. It's when it started to take off in the 19th century that they were called romantics of that period. So, <clears throat> what does poetic faith mean? Right, so like, it's poetry, poetic faith. So poetry is about conveying, conveyance. So you're conveying a scene, a subject, a theme, event, a place, people. You're conveying the transitoriness. You're conveying the transitions that go on within the portrayal of your conveyance. That's what poetry is. So all the transferring. So from nature to manner, from what's exact to what's natural, what's unnatural, what's inexact. Everything that's taking place within the poem is all a transference, right? So, um, in the human interest of that and the semblance, so semblance is like, uh, it's identity, you something you identify with, it's like an object. You know, uh, an image or an image, an image, identity, an image. Um, So, and the truth of that 
within all the form of what's going on there, all the colour or lack of, <coughs> and that um, is being left to the imagination. So our imagination, our imagination is willing the suspension of disbelief for the moment. So it's like a temporary thing. This is something that's happening that's only temporary. That is what constitutes poetic faith. In Coleridge himself, critic and poet that he is, um, he's dealing with the sight of an illusion. So like, that obviously is only temporary. And uh, the logic of the, imag the imagination of it, like the logic to the imagination of it, is like, um, is the function, is the functioning of it. So like the f fluency, the fluency is fluidity. You know, like, a, you know, when you're like a conscious stream of thought, so an unconscious experience. to engage temporarily in the suspension of disbelief. Any, for the, at least in an act of poetic faith, in an act of poetic, this is what we're getting at. So, right. Furthermore, with that, let's break down Coleridge a little more. Um, on this writer, and his original formulation of <coughs> suspension of disbelief, which is a phrase in the Biographia Literaria, or Literaria, Literaria, or Literaria, Biographia Literaria, right, published in 1817 in the context of the creation and reading of the poetry. So, right, there's a particular chapter that describes the preparations with Wordsworth, that's just like his mate, who he wrote like poetic ballads with. <clears throat> this is all within the first edition, um, before the 1800s itself, this is like going back to 1798, the 17th century, you're coming to the, like, within the, it's way at the end of the Victorian period. Um, so, like, 1798, in the first edition of their lyrical ballads that they had written together as chums, right? It's, t it's, like, defined as a revolutionary collaboration between Wordsworth and Coleridge, <clears throat> who, are like, had contributed to that gothic period which then only really took off in the first decades of the 19th century and was defined as romantic so there's one ballad in particular 
it's a poem that's fictional um, and of the supernatural. So, and it's from the 18th century. It's the rhyme of the ancient mariner. Now, this might cause some ambiguity in some. Um, there's alternative spellings to the likes of the rhyme of the ancient mariner. Um, it's one of the longest major poems by the English poet himself, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, written in 1797, 1798, and published in 19, pardon me, start again, published in 1798 in the first edition of Lyrical Ballads. Uh, also got a printed feature um, as well um, in 1817. It's considered a single shift to modern poetry from the likes of what they're saying was the beginning of British Romantic Literature. So, if we avoid going into any more depth with this synopsis of it and other versions of the poem, the poem begins with an old grey-bearded sailor, a mariner, Stopping at a guest, he's stopping at a guest. It's probably stopping a guest. He's stopping a guest at a wedding ceremony. Get my words out correctly. To tell him a story of a sailing voyage he took long ago. Now this wedding guest is reluctant at first, right? And the ceremony is about to begin. The mariner's glittering eye captivates him. The mariner's tale begins with the ship departing on its journey. Despite initial good fortune, the ship is driven south by a storm and eventually reaches the icy waters of Antarctic. And then an albatross appears. Leaves the ship out of the ice so that it doesn't get jammed up and stuck there. But as the albatross is fed and praised by the ship's crew, the mariner shoots the bird. <laughs> right. And he shot it, not with a gun, but with a crossbow. So it's more like, <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> he shoots it with a crossbow, not a gun. Because it's like old back then, something a little more accessible at hand, like a crossbow. He shoots him with a crossbow and declares that he shot the albatross. I shot the albatross. At lines 81 to 82. Now, it's a massive poem, it's actually a really big one. And then you go into like lines 101 to 102. Twas right, said they, such bursts to slay that bring the fog and mist
they soon find that they made a great mistake in supporting this crime as it arouses the wrath of spirits who then pursue the ship Initially, the weather starts to blow them north and sends the ship into uncharted waters near the equator. And then we get into some lines here. Day after day, day after day, we stuck, nor breath, nor motion, as idle as a painted ship. Upon a painted ocean, water, water everywhere, and all the boards did shrink. Water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink. The very deep did rot, O oh Christ, that ever this should be. Yes, slimy things did crawl with legs upon the slimy sea. Right, so that's lines 115 to 126. The sailors, they changed their minds again, right? And they blamed the mariner for the torment of their thirst. In anger, the crew forces the mariner to wear the dead albatross around his neck, right? Perhaps to illustrate the burden of suffering. Mm. Because you killed it. You murdered the albatross. You you are. You learn to regret it. (laughs) Ah, well a day. That evil looks had I from old and young. Instead of the cross, the albatross. About my neck was hung. So that's lines 139 to 142. They're all getting very weary right now. The ship encounters a ghostly hulk. It's death. Nothing but death. Like a skeleton. All over you. Made of creepy skeleton gas death in the air the nightmare the life in death deathly pale woman she's playing dice for the souls of the crew right now the mariner to the mariner there's a prize that she considers more valuable than the likes of the mariner's life her name is a clue to the mariner's fate. The ensuing punishment for murdering the albatross continues until one by one the entire crew die. But the mariner lives on. Seeing for seven days and nights the curse in the eyes of the crew's corpses and the last expressions that remain on their faces we get into some more lines so four times 50 living men 
and I heard nor sigh nor groan. With heavy thump, a lifeless lump, they dropped down one by one. The souls did from their bodies fly. They fled to bliss or woe. And every soul, it passed me by, like the whiz of my crossbow. This line's 216 to 223. Eventually the stage is set and the mariner's curse is lifted. So, we've got a line here. A spring of love gushed from my heart and I blessed them unaware. That's the end of the line. Now, he's managing to pray, and this albatross, or like the murdered albatross, falls away from his neck, right? His guilt is partially expiated, right? So he's like freeing himself from the curse and the pain. And, uh, this murder that he committed by murdering the albatross. And then it starts to rain. The bodies of the crew, possessed by good spirits, they rise again and start to help steer the ship. In a trance, the mariner, right, he hears two spirits uh, talking about the voyage. And penitence. So that's it, like, basically repenting his sins for murdering the albatross and, uh, and the demise of his crew within the curse you know, the punishment for murdering the albatross so coldly cold blood he learns that the ship's being powered supernaturally there's some lines there the air is cut away before and closes from behind lines 424 to 425 as I said this is a really massive poem I cannot be doing every single line right the mariner wakes from the trance. He comes into the sight of his homeland, yeah, and it's uncertain whether or not he's actually hallucinating. So, like, he gets into some more lines. Oh, dream of joy. Is this indeed the lighthouse top I see? Is this the hill? Is this the kirk? Is this mine own country? We drifted o'er the harbour bar and I with sobs did pray oh let me be awake my god or let me sleep away lines 464 to 471 now the rotten corpses of all his shipmates yeah they're all sinking in a whirlpool right <laughs> and leaving only this mariner behind right No, we don't want to go. It's going into the lines about uh, the childhood and stuff. Right. They start to pull the mariner from the water and they think he's dead. But when he opens his mouth, the pilot shrieks with fright. Right. 
back on land, right? A mariner, the mariner is compelled by a woeful agony, which is all part of his hermit story, right? Now, as you know, like he's committed the murder of an albatross in cold blood that actually helped them before being slain so cruelly, right? And then the mariner took to like repenting his sins and for shooting the albatross with an act of penance. Driven by the agony of his guilt and forced to wander the earth, telling his story over and over to anyone that will listen or people that are too busy to listen to teach the lesson pardon me of his experience and what he learnt right it's a few lines here he prayeth best who loveth best all things both great and small for the dear God who loveth us he made and loveth all that's line 614 to 617 now after finishing his story the mariner leaves right a wedding guest returns uh, to go home returns home basically waking the next morning he's much sadder and wiser now the poem's epic right <laughs> and it received mixed reviews As I said in the beginning, before I started to read, it's such a little part of the lines to the such epic scale of this poem, anyway. Um, the some people might re- receive the point of it in ambiguity. It's better to disambiguate the whole thing and disseminate it for what it really is. Um, and having made the point already, it's like one of those life lessons where, you know, that's kind of littered with a lot of nerve and everything, and even in just preaching the point at times to, like, for the effect that it has. So, like, as was it really, Is it that was it that worthwhile? Is it that worthwhile? It gave people mixed feelings. At the end of the day, people have mixed feelings about it. And um, I think it's quite, it's a novelty. It's a, it's a like unique, a novel type of like, it's, it's almost whimsical. I thought like, well, I, I just reading the little parts that I did that it's actually sort of quite whimsical um, what do you think it's one of those it's an archaic it's one of those archaic poems like on a really big scale because there's like hundreds and hundreds of lines but um it's also somewhat inspiring as well really it's a bit inspirational and it's sort of quirky funny in a way and quirky funny but like if you've got the time to sit down and read all the lines yourself I hope you if you do it 
that you enjoy it because it's sometimes I think it's like quite quirky and funny. Um, in terms of what, like, oh, the period, in thinking about the period, um, archaics, it's got words, there's words there, or a word or two that are way older than the likes of the period he wrote it in. So, like, that go right back to, like, ancient Greeks. Um, archaic itself is a Greek word. So, like, <clears throat> uh, you would equate it with the antiquities and that of, like, antiquities and the ancient of old. So, um, even just saying that, having said that, I mean, the Gothic period of the 18th century is oh, it's over 100 years ago. What, it's like 2021 now, what, almost 2022. You know, like, before the 19th century, when there was no such thing as electricity and stuff like that, all they had was some steam engines, you know, that are fired by coal and everything. Ooh. And that everything was candlelight and still candlelight and that, you know, like. It's like one of the, it's of that age, within that age of its, age's period, that period of, or that age and its period. It's sort of like a, of reason, it's sort of like a, one of those ages of reason. Um... Uh, that you know chiefly like chiefly made a point of style to like I think it's really creative personally it's one of my favourites um suspension of disbelief I mean I I took it up with the ICO as well like just in commenting really it was part of my general as part of my narrative the truth like the narrative of my truth within my right to complain thinking back some months ago and I just bunged it in there within the, the like one of the paragraphs and not to mention Samuel Taylor Coleridge and suspension of disbelief you know so like still very pertinent still very pertinent um, I was taking up a way to rationalise a perspective I have on addiction and diseases within and the likes of its criminology to like for the sake of mentality just to be addressed in the sake of language and mentality like at least from earlier on today and the day before and stuff like that so I was caught up in it, a lot of stuff resurfaces. Telling my like the literature I have like stuck in my head and stuff, even rolled dull and things like that. I don't really, it's, there's no, I don't need to escape it anyway. I'm not, I'm not the one that's in pain, but or being a pain. But at the end of the day, <laughs> once you start to absorb this stuff and you really take it in and you're mindful of it, you know, and you can. And especially when you enjoy it, because if you don't enjoy it, you, you, why would you? Why would it be there? Why would it wouldn't be there? <laughs> I'm gonna say, if you take up the habit of stuff like this, 
and that, then you would be. You would, your mind would acquire it properly. You'd absorb it, and you'd be mindful of it more and more. People who don't, they don't. But like, um, so there you go. I hope that got you thinking. Go check it out. Yeah. Um, remember the title of that epic poem from the actual like contributions that he made with Wordsworth within the lyrical ballads. It's called The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. But you spell rhyme R-I-M-E. You don't do H-Y. Do R-I-M-E. The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. The original title itself um, it's the only variation in the spelling is within Ancient Mariner, not the word rhyme. It's still R-I-M-E. So um, if you find the time, check it out. Read, read the thing. Or I hope that you enjoyed this. Maybe you might find something on YouTube or something. Or if you're into audiobooks, maybe I, I don't know who they might have got to narrate. Um, might have a bunch of actors, I don't know, it might be Stephen Fry, who knows? But like, well, go check it out. Cool, thanks a lot. Stay safe, stay well, help stop the spread of the virus, stay home, save lives. They can't get you in the car on the way to work and that, or to Sainsbury's and whatnot. So, uh, and, you know, stick to the guidelines, wear a mask. Health and hygiene all the way. Don't forget to wash your hands and that all the time when you've gone to the toilet or not and everything. Stay safe, stay well. Peace.